So why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians? That's where we're at, Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've been going through this book, and uh, we are uh, on our way to be finished with this pretty shortly. If you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have some leaders, helpers that would love to get you guys a Bible. Um, so we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we are kind of coming close to the end. We've been in chapter 6 for kind of a long time, and to be really honest with you, way longer than what I originally anticipated. Um, a lot of times what I'll do when I prepare to teach through a book or teach through a subject, I kind of map it out and try to figure out like what I'm going to be where and whatnot. Um, but this is kind of far past any planning and whatnot. So we've spent a lot of time probably throughout the month of October and November uh, in looking at a particular subject in chapter six. And we look at the subject of what's traditionally recognized or known as spiritual warfare. Uh, but the particular facet of spiritual warfare that we looked at was more so um, under kind of the heading, uh, the devil's devices. Or in other words, the ways in which the devil tries to attack, tries to undo what God is wanting to do. So that's what we've been looking at. We've been trying to become a little bit more in tune, more aware of how the devil tries to undermine God's good work. And so we've kind of called that whole season the devil's devices. We looked at uh, kind of a long list of subjects and ideas and concepts that are throughout Scripture. It's by no means exhaustive throughout the entire Scripture, but it covered a lot of them. Um, and if you're interested in that, you can go check that out online. All the messages are there online as well. Um, but what I want to really begin to talk about now uh, and we'll read the passage in just a moment here. It's uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We'll go down about verse 14. Uh, the main thing that I really want to emphasize that Paul, I think, is really on my, Paul's mind is the subject matter of our posture. And what I mean by that is the posture that Paul is going to repeat four different times that he wants us to have is a posture of standing, a posture of stance. And when I think about this, it's kind of a posture that's opposed or in opposition, I should say, or unique, or distinguished from other forms of posture. So if I were to kind of give you some descriptions of various forms of posture, um, what would you think about, or what do you think about in these various forms of posture? So think about the posture of laying down. What comes to your mind when you think about the posture of laying down? Sleep, all right? I think of nap. I love naps. Um, you, you think about maybe vulnerability. So when you're asleep, when you're in you know, napping position, like, you're not ready to fight, you know, un unless you're into jiu-jitsu or something like that. Uh, because if you're on the ground, it's like the best spot for you to be. But that's only the subject, and I digress. But the point of the matter is, is that the posture of laying down, you typically think of maybe sleeping or resting or whatever. Uh, if you think of the posture of sitting, if you think of the posture of sitting, kind of like what you guys are doing right now, it's kind of a posture of learning. You are uh, listening, you're hearing, you're maybe observing. If you're going to go watch a movie, you're typically sitting down. If you're going to... Uh, engage in a dialogue, or I should say maybe in a lecture or something like that, you're going to sit down. But the posture that Paul is going to introduce to us or emphasize to us on numerous occasions is the posture of standing. And the standing posture that Paul is basically emphasizing is one of alertness, of being ready, of being on guard. And the point of the matter that I think Paul is trying to identify and talk about is that uh, he uses an analogy of talking about soldiers, and the analogy that he's linking with the soldier is that a soldier is to stand. So what Paul is going to say to the believers is, I want you to stand as opposed to laying down, being vulnerable, as opposed to just simply sitting, whereby you're not fully engaged, but so that in standing, 
you'll be prepared, you'll be ready for any type of onslaught of attack uh, that may come against you. Because again, the context that Paul's been talking about is that we are basically in a battle. We're in a battle. So if you think of it this way, God comes into this world through Jesus. Jesus rescues us. Jesus sets us free. We typically say Jesus saves us. And that's Bible terminology, Bible language. And oftentimes, Bible terminology, like we're saved, oftentimes gets monopolized or gets used or hijacked. Um, and oftentimes, we, it loses its potency. One of the ways I like to think about being saved is being rescued. That, that's really another uh, a term that can be used or supplemented for the idea of being saved, that Jesus rescues us. Jesus delivers us. And the fact is, is that after being delivered on an ultimate sense, he delivers us from ultimate destruction. We call that hell. But we also, he also delivers us from corrupting influences in this world. Things like, you know, lying. Lying leads to brokenness. Things also, a list of all sorts of things that you can think about that Jesus delivers us from corrupting influences that bring about further brokenness within our lives. He delivers us. What Paul is saying, that in this world, even though one has been delivered or rescued or saved, that there's still influences that are at work trying to undermine and undo every good thing that God has sought to do. So that's one of the reasons why, let's say, for example, if you are a Christian, you are saved, that walking, living as a Christian is not the most easiest thing in the world. In fact, some tend to think, well, maybe I'll become a Christian, and then once I become a Christian, everything will be fine, everything will be easier. It's actually not true. Many, many people discover the moment they begin to follow God, follow Christ, follow Jesus, become a follower of Christ, be a Christian, whatever you want to describe it, they discover oftentimes their lives take uh, turns that being, things become very challenging, very difficult. And the reason why it becomes difficult and challenging is because you've been basically thrown into a battle, a warfare. And there is a warfare to try to undo all that God wants to do within your life. All that is good is seeking through these other influences to bring about corruption within your life. There's three different ways in which we've looked at over the past several months, and most of you guys are familiar with. I'll go through them real fast. Three different ways in which uh, there's these influences that constantly uh, have this tendency to you know, master us if we do not stand or take the posture. First of which is the world. And we think of the world as the world around us, but it's not just simply the world around us in terms of the dirt and the earth or a mountain. It's really speaking about the system of this world. And the way the system of this world works, if you think of it, just you don't have to think about it too hard, it's totally corrupt. I mean, the world in which the way we live in this world is it's really a system of retribution, of violent Retribution. In other words, if you don't get your way or if someone does something against you, it's typically I will crush you for wounding me or hurting me. And it's a system of constant ongoing lies, uh, covetousness, murder, violence, brokenness, uh, exploitation, rape, sexual taking advantage of someone else. But the point of the matter is all of these things are part of the system in this world that's part of the corruption within this world. And that's the world in which we live in. Again, you can just simply turn on the news and realize that this world is very corrupt. But it's not just simply the world that's an influence over us. It's also the flesh. And the Bible basically describes the flesh as really, for the most part, being these desires that you and I have. 
So obviously, every single one of us in this room, we have desires. Some of those desires are really good. So if you, for example, are a mom or a dad of young children, your desire is to see your children grow up and have a great relationship with you. That is a wonderful desire that should continue to fan into that flame. If you have a desire to like, go to church and desire to give, a desire to give resources or time or energy to serve other people, those are great desires. But we also realize that we are human beings, and what that means is that we have contradictory desires as well. Do you all agree? That there, at the same time, we may have these desires to go to church and worship Jesus and get right with God and forgive other people and help the poor and give money away to the homeless people and whatnot. At the same time, there are these filthy desires for other things that are very corrupt. And most of which, most of the time, we don't ever want anybody to even know that we have those desires because we're ashamed of them. We're afraid that if we uh, reveal those desires, we will not be loved let alone liked. So we have these desires. And really at the heart of what the gospel does is the gospel reorients, it changes our desires so that rather than loving evil, loving things that are corruptible, corrupting, we love that which is incorruptible, that which is life-giving, otherwise known as God. That's what the gospel does. It It reorients, it changes our desires. So we love God. We love what God loves. We love what God is doing. That's why, really, it's, it's a Christian that, that can say the prayer, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's, a, that's a prayer of desire. God, this world is like a dirty, filthy trailer park, and we need help. And you're the one that can provide help because you live in a beautiful mansion that's full of beauty and glory. God, we need some of that beauty and that glory down here to make this broken place whole again. That's really, in short, my version of saying, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that is a prayer that basically says, God, I want, I desire, I want something that you have, that you deliver, that you offer, which is good. God changes our desire. So the world, the flesh, and then ultimately the devil. And this is what we've been looking at, is the devil. The devil tempts, the devil has influence, the devil has power, uh, not rivaled power to God. He's not the same as God. It's really important to understand this. That the devil and Jesus are not like the yin and the yang. They're not like co-equals, and they fight and battle against each other, the devil's actually a created being. Jesus is not. Jesus is God. So the fact of the matter is that the devil, though, has great authority, great power. And one of the ways in which he has or exercises authority and his power over our lives is really by way of influence. In other words, he nudges us. He tempts us. He uh, oftentimes introduces things into us, whether it be him or one of his, you know, demons, uh, work under him, however you want to describe that. But the fact of the matter is he works by way of influence. And in other words, you can think of it this way, that when the influence of God or the kingdom of God comes upon your heart and you are moved by the gospel, that is a gospel of good news. That is a gospel that's, that's, that's changed by forgiveness and love. And so the gospel may be influencing you, say, saying to your heart, forgive that person. But the devil is coming by way of his influence bringing corruptible types of uh, emotions and feelings and thoughts by saying, no, 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 hate those people. Take violence against them. And those corruptible desires are constantly waging war against these life-giving desires from God. And this is what we call by way of Paul's words, spiritual warfare. This is what we've been looking at over the past several months. And this is what I want to wrap it up, take a look at, 
So in short, if you want to think of it this way, the first things that we took a look at over the past several months, uh, November, October, that time season around there, we looked at the devil's devices, and we looked at it in two forms, common forms of demonic and blatant forms of demonic activity. Again, I won't get into any of that. The second thing we'll be taking a look at beginning today over the next couple weeks, and then we'll be finishing some around uh, February, uh, mid-February, so something like that, and then we'll be going to a brand new series, which I'm excited to share with you guys a little about, uh, won't go into right now, but we'll be going to a brand new series looking at the subject of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, rather, and who he is, and how he works, and what he wants to do, and what God's up to through the Holy Spirit. It's this amazing uh, part of the Trinity that oftentimes gets overlooked. God the Father, we oftentimes talk about, we're familiar with to some degree, Jesus, we're very familiar with because we've seen him in movies, and, and yet the Holy Spirit is oftentimes one that gets overlooked. And yet Jesus himself said, you realize it's actually better for me to depart so that as I depart, you'll get the Holy Spirit? I mean, think about that. I mean, it's kind of a, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching on that right now, so I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to go back. I digress far too. Uh, so I want to get back to this. So the point of the matter is, is that we will be finishing this up around mid-February, and then we'll be looking at that. But what I want to look at over the next couple of weeks is really the believer's help. That God actually gives us help. That isn't just simply save us and say, yeah, it's gnarly out there. There's a devil, and there's a world, and your flesh is pretty messed up. But do the best you can to survive, and I'll be up here in heaven giving you double thumbs up. I mean, be like a father... Uh, loving his child and throwing him in a room with a nasty, mean Rottweiler and be like, do the best you can. Just know that I love you and I'm thinking of good thoughts about you. That kid does not stand a chance. That is not how God works. God gives us help. And this is what Paul emphasizes, that you are not alone. And Paul wants to remind us that if you're a follower of Jesus... That even though it may feel tough, even though there may be moments where you feel alone or lonely or it might feel as if you are weak, this is where preaching the gospel to ourselves and having others, welcoming others, inviting others into our lives, we call those community groups, by the way, in Calvary Slow, that's so important that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves the good news that God has not abandoned us, but he actually is rather with us and he's with us in the most potent, most powerful, most unbelievable ways. And this is what we see. So I want to read the passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 14, and uh, we'll make some comments and we'll wrap it up. Verse 10, chapter 6 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. The emphasis is upon God, God's might. Then he says, verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers, against uh, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or resist in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand, therefore. So again, we see the most common word that Paul uses there over and over again, four different times, four different occasions, uh, uses the word stand, and they're all kind of the same variation of the same uh, Greek word that he uses. And the idea is that Paul wants us to be aware of our posture. So the question I want to ask you right now to think about and consider is what is your posture currently right now when it comes to this type of stuff? What is your posture? Is it a posture of laying on your back, 
vulnerable to the point where every inordinate desire, to where every corrupting influence is actually like a virus preying on you and you're hemorrhaging? Or are you in a posture where it's like, no, I'm standing and I'm alert, I'm ready for whatever is going to come against me because I know that God will give me strength in that evil day to help me to withstand. Let me just say this real quick. It's really important that no matter what your posture is, if your posture is one of sitting or standing or laying on your back, hemorrhaging, there's room for you here in this family. It's really important to understand that there's a tendency oftentimes in churches to kind of take passages like this which really this is written in an imperative. If you, in other words, there's several different occasions, at least four or five or so, something like that, that I count in just reading this, that Paul actually is giving a command. That's what an imperative imperative is. is Paul's basically saying, be strong in God. Stand firm. Have you know, the, the whole armor of God clothed upon yourself. These are all commands that Paul gives. And what happens is you kind of get sort of like, within American Christianity, kind of this uber-strength, uh, uber spirituality type of mentality of, of I'm, we're really strong and we are the church of super uber strong people. And if you're not strong, you need to repent and get strong. And what happens is people that are weak, people that are hemorrhaging, people that are broken, the way the Bible describes it, people that are like smoking flax, about ready to go out, people that are like bruised reeds, feeling as if they're about to break. There's no room for them in that church. And I would say that's not the church that Jesus created. Let me suggest to you that there is place, there's a spot, there is space, there's room at the table for people that are hemorrhaging, people that are broken, people that are wounded. And what God does is he creates this thing called the church that helps to build people up, to strengthen them, to nurse them, to bring them by way of process of cultivation to a place whereby rather than being snapped As a bruised reed, taking it the rest of the way and just breaking it in half, that bruised reed can actually become nursed back into something really healthy and strong. Or rather than having smoking flax, think of it this way, smoking flax is a candle. You know how you lit candles on New Year's Eve or Christmas, you see a little candle, it's like almost barely going out because maybe the wax level is a little bit high, the liquid wax, and so it's barely out. What Jesus does is he fans that back into this flame so it becomes something raging and beautiful and awesome. That's what God wants to do. So if you're here this morning and you are in the posture of vulnerability and brokenness and you find yourself hemorrhaging, glad you're here. Welcome. Jesus wants to meet you. And it's awesome. It's good news. So what Paul wants for us to be aware of is that he wants to encourage us to get to a posture where we are standing. So the question is, how do we do that? So I'm going to start by looking at two specific things, uh, really kind of asking two questions. The first question is, is why do we need this strength? So it's kind of a question of pragmatics or practicalities. And what does it do for us? So it's kind of a good place to begin and sort of American consumeristic mentality of like, okay, what's it all? What's in it for me? Like what what, what does Christianity have for me? What is obeying this? If I'm going to do this, and what, what's in it for me? And I'm glad you asked because there's some good information to be given back because there is something that God wants to give us. First of all, is that what God does by standing strong in him, uh, the reason why we need the strength is because 
it begins to bring about a preservation of what God began in us. This is what Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is what your grandma has monogrammed on her T-shirt or uh, gave you in that little Thomas Kincaid card. It has this little verse on here. It says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the end. This is a God that cares about us, and by his strength, he will complete that which he started in us. He will preserve his strength. That's why we need his strength. That's why we need to recognize that his strength allows us to move from a posture of vulnerability and brokenness and hemorrhaging to a place whereby we can be, be strong because it's a way for God to continue to preserve us and what he began. The second thing is it helps us to resist temptation. So again, if you think about not resisting temptation, akin to, um, I don't know, a vulnerable animal in the middle of the, you know, forest being preyed upon by vultures. If that's the picture here, and if your entire life, all the energy you have is doing nothing more than batting off the vultures and batting off the vampires and batting away that which just wants to suck blood, suck life from you, at some point that becomes exhausting. I would suggest that a lot of American Christianity, as one author describes it, has created sort of a system of nothing more than sin management. In other words, a lot of Christians tend to think of their Christian life as being nothing more than the struggle of stopping certain forms of sin. And I would suggest to you that the Christian life is not less than that, but it's far more than that. That yes, it does involve managing sin. It does involve standing up to withstanding, what Paul said, uh, against temptation. But it's far more than that. If you never get past that, if your entire Christian life is doing nothing more than managing and manicuring the sin of your life, you'll never really move into the, the, the life of blessing that God intends for you. Your whole, really, your whole life will be nothing more than just focused on yourself. And the problem with that is, is that that's, that's not what God saves us for. And so, yes, God gives us power so that we could resist temptation. So that when corrupting influences are tempting us, when we're thinking about things that we know, that if we go down that path, it will lead us to a place of, of brokenness and corruption and death and destruction, that by God's grace, we can avoid that. We can get off that path and go down another path by saying no to that path and saying yes to this other path. It'd be kind of similar to like if, if Paul were to write maybe a little letter to, uh, oh, let's just say three million Jews leaving Pharaoh's Egypt, he probably would have said something like this. Hey, you guys, you don't make bricks anymore. Stop thinking about making bricks every day. Because here's the thing, they live their life doing nothing but making bricks, working for an oppressive government, a system that was doing nothing but oppressing them and crushing them. But every morning, I would imagine, after they woke up out of that system of Egypt, they'd probably wake up in the morning and be like, what should we do today? Oh, let's just go make some bricks. Let's go gather straw. I would, like, like Paul would say, no, 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 you're free from that. Don't go back to that system of brokenness and oppression again. You're free. Realize that you're free. You don't need to go down that path anymore. Instead, make your way to the promised land. Make your way to this life that's flowing with milk and honey. Like this, this, is, this is, I think, what, what Paul would be saying is that, yes, we have strength that God gives us to resist temptation, but there is more. And I think the third thing is it also gives us power 
And what I mean by power is I mean motivation. Something happens in the engine within our hearts. If you think of motivation as like an engine, it's a force. It's something that moves you. What the strength of God does is it gives us power and motivation to do good, to do good. Read the book of Titus. It's just a really small, almost like a postcard that Paul wrote to a young man by the name of Titus. And oftentimes, one of the most reoccurring phrases that Paul uses in that little book is the word good works. So what Paul is regularly saying to Titus is recognize what God has done for you so that you can be this vehicle, this channel, this hose, this garden hose that's hooked up, attached to this eternal source of power and God's grace and kindness and love and mercy and generosity so that through your life, you will do works. Now get this. If God is good, and if this good God has rescued you, and if this good God does work through you, what type of works would those be? Good works. So there's like no mystery about like, what is a good work? A good work is work that reflects our good God. Well, what does that look like then? Well, I think in short, there's lots of things you can talk about, but a couple of those I have written down here. One is enemy love. <laughs> love enemies. I mean, Jesus himself said it. So there's like no mystery to all of this. Like, we're like, well, like, let's see, what's good works? Jesus tells us what good works are. He says, love your enemies. See, the problem is the corrupting influences in our lives say, no, 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 hate your enemies. And what happens is that when we listen to those little voices or we listen to those influences and we find ourselves getting into those situations, what happens is we allow a system of corrupting influences to do what corrupting influences do. They Corrupt. They destroy. Um, I was reading an article this past week, a couple days ago. It was based upon a 75-year study. Millions of dollars were spent. 75-year study uh, based out of Harvard University. And the main question that they were trying to ask was the question of what leads to a life that flourishes? And there's all sorts of things that they've thrown out. Um, all sorts of things that they said that here's what a life that languishes looks like, you know, and lives that are messed up. And it's kind of funny, the, the thing that it said that lives that are messed up, lives that leave, uh, lead lives, or people that lead lives, I should say, that don't find themselves in joy or flourishing, they said that one thing that's, in, that's consistent with every single one of those is, is alcohol abuse. It's a, a kind of a no-brainer. I mean, we, 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 most of us probably already knew that. Um, I mean, even we just read this in the book of Ephesians a couple months ago where Paul says, you know, don't get drunk with wine because it's debauchery or dissipation. In other words, it's another way of saying, look, if a person that is constantly turning to alcohol instead of God for joy will lead to brokenness, corrupting influences. But one of the things that they said that always happens that leads to the greatest number one contributing factor that leads to a flourishing life is, is loving relationships. Ones that are not defined by retributions, ones that are not defined by violent outbursts, ones that are not defined by anger, bitterness, but ones that are filled with love. And, and when Jesus says stuff to us like, hey, love your enemies, you know really what he's saying? He's saying, understand there are corrupting influences that will crush you. And they will destroy you if you do not stop them. At some point, they will turn you into something like Gollum. Something that is not human. Something that is not normative. Something that tends towards brokenness. So, love of enemies is another one I think of as uh, forgiving offenses. That, again, 
The script of the world basically says that we're given to us by way of the world, by flesh. You know, I mean, what's the number one desire that comes to your mind when somebody offends you? When somebody you love, somebody you care about, somebody that you have invested some emotional uh, energy into or capital with, when they betray you, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to hold that grudge and nurse it. You know what Jesus says? You got to let that go. That is a corrupting influence that will absolutely crush you. And so what God's power does, it gives us the ability not only to forgive others, to serve, to help forgive, um, but also to serve the poor, marginalized, forgotten. These are are all what the Bible describes as, as good works. Works that reflect the good God that we have. So again, how does this motivate us or change us? Well, it motivates us and changes us when you begin to realize that in the first place, you were the one, you and I should say, all of us, were the ones that were God's enemies. We weren't just casual bystanders that had bad things happen to us, sin happened to us. We, the way C.S. Lewis would describe it, we were rebels that really, for the most part, need to put down our arms before God and say, I surrender. And what we see with God is that God, rather than beheading us, crushing us, and our place of vulnerability, he does something shocking. He forgives us. The second thing is we see that God washes and cleanses. He forgives his enemies. This is what God does. So when you begin to realize that you were the one that was forgiven by God a great debt, you were the one that has been an enemy, and yet now has been invited to come near as a friend, not just as a friend, but as a son or as a daughter, meaning one who is highly honored, one who at some point will be the recipient of all that the Father has to give. We call that the inheritance, that God says, this is how I treat you who are once alienated by your sin, by your rebellion, by your brokenness. I've drawn you near. So this is what God's strength really does for us. It changes us. That's why we need it. Now, I want to ask the second question and wrap this up. Where do we obtain this strength? Where do we obtain this strength? And this is where we kind of move to the passage, the text and we've been reading and looking at. First of all, we take a look at three things. One is that we get it from God's strength. It's like this is where we get the strength. We get it actually from God. Um, in other words, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you already have this strength. It's important to understand. It's kind of like somebody who's filthy rich. They've got you know, millions of dollars in their bank account and yet they still choose to live on a poverty level. Now, we would look at that and just be like, that's absurd. Like, how do people do that? I knew a guy, actually, it's kind of a segue. I, I remember a guy a long time ago, super rich. I lived in Orange County. This guy was, like, supposedly one of the richest dudes in Orange County. If you know anything about Orange County, you know Orange County's got a lot of money. This guy was supposedly one of the richest dudes in Orange County. Um, this guy, like, lived on poverty level. Like, he actually went to the local Okay, not even the real college, but the city college. Not that city college aren't real college, but he went to the city college. I didn't mean to offend any of you that are going to question that. But the point of the matter is, he would go to city college and actually buy a, a pass to eat the food there because he, he just didn't want to pay for food. He was just too cheap. And he was, it was crazy. He drove this junker of a car. And again, someone would be like, well, maybe he's just really frugal. No, I, I, no, he wasn't frugal. The point of the matter, I mean, he was definitely very frugal. I mean, it wasn't like, that's a whole other story. But the point of the matter is, most of us as Christians, we don't realize the strength that we have in God. It's already ours. In other words, we choose to live on a level whereby we have no strength. 
We have no energy, no power, no might that's given to us. So we choose to live in some way that we're always vulnerable. Now, again, like I said, there is space for us from time to time when moments get crisis-like in our lives, whereby we will fall flat on our face in a vulnerable position, posture, a brokenness. But at some point, there should be a trajectory whereby you will begin to receive God's strength and you will be healed and nursed back. If you spend your entire life on the floor in a vulnerable position, broken, nonstop, and there's no change, no transformation, no trajectory change within your life, it's possible that maybe you are choosing to believe in your life, in your mind, I don't have any strength. I am a nobody. I have no power. God doesn't care about me. And those are fundamental issues that need to be addressed on a level of understanding and asking, who is God? What has God done for you? So first of all, we begin to realize that God gives us his strength. And again, this is what Paul meant, I think, when he said in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. So again, our strength is in the Lord. It's in the power of his might that God gives us. Back when I was in high school, uh, there was a movie that had come out. It was called, I think it was like called My Bodyguard or something like that. Maybe some of you guys have heard about it or thought about it or maybe at some point saw something kind of like retro or whatever. Like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, but basically, the gist of the story was this. It was this young, really uh, scrawny, small kid. Didn't have any muscles, really pencil neck. And it's the type of kid that like everybody would pick on. He was kind of bullied all throughout school. And, whatnot. and finally, again, it's been a long time since I've seen it. The gist of it is he basically comes in contact with this really big, ripped, uber-manly guy who then basically, I don't know what the scenario was, or how they kind of got the connection going on, but he basically became his bodyguard. So anytime this kid would be picked on or made fun of or trash-talked or whatever, basically they would then have to deal with bodyguard guy, which was big and manly and scary and frightening. So uh, really the point of the matter is, is that this kid was, even, even in himself, he was weak. But in the bodyguard, he was mighty and super strong. And this is the way it is with Christians, is that in ourselves, we are weak. But God is strong. We sing that in that very simple song, Jesus Loves Me, right? Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. It says, a little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. And that's the reality. There's a lot of great theology in that song. And it's absolutely true that we, in and of ourselves, we are weak, but yet God is strong. And that those that are in this relationship with God have his strength. So the second thing is that we see is not only that we have God's strength, but we also have God's armor. And I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this other than to just simply point out the fact that Paul says on two different occasions, he says to put on and to take up the whole armor of God. So again, what, whose, whose armor is it? It's God's. It's God's armor being given to us. Um, but the emphasis is that uh, we have to put it on and take it up. So there is some level of responsibility that God calls us to, to activate, to live out, to embody the power that has been given to us so that we then begin by his grace, by his Holy Spirit, to make wise choices to undo, to withstand, to fight, to resist evil temptations and in, uh, corruptible influences. So, again, we'll unpack this over the next few weeks, but the second thing, like I said, is God's armor. The final thing is that God's family. And I want to finish by this thought, just thinking about this, is that God brings you into his family. 
Paul was writing this letter not to you so that you can just simply sit around and have a devotional time. I mean, if you do that, that's awesome. You should do that. I would highly encourage you, start reading through the Bible. If you don't currently have habits of reading through the Bible, uh, read through the Scripture. It's absolutely important. It's vital for your understanding of who God is. It should be a window to your soul to see the greatness of God. So read the Scripture. But the thing you need to understand that first and foremost was that this letter was not written to an individual. It was written to a church, a body, a group of people. So when Paul would say things like, be strong in the Lord, he's not talking to an individual, he's talking to a body. He's talking to a grouping of people that are gathered together, perhaps in a living room, or perhaps in a hall that's been rented, to simply read the letters, read the writings from this Apostle Paul, this messenger of God, to receive wisdom and insight and instruction and counsel as to how to live in accordance to the life that God has given them through Jesus. So the point that I want to make is this, is that God has brought you, if you're a Christian, into not just an individualistic, subjective experience that you had with God, but he's brought you into an objective family. And the reason why I think this is really important to state is that we live in a culture, in fact, I would say it's more so in America, perhaps than any other country in the world, and I think part of that has to do with our consumerism and our individualism. Those two twins that come together that basically fuel and transform and make us as human beings, as, as Americans, I should say, American human beings, is we tend to think of things in terms of individualistic, what does it do for me, how does it help me, what did I feel, and consumeristic, how does it benefit me? The problem is, that oftentimes translates over into the church where we say things like this. If you've ever said this, if you've ever heard somebody say this, something along the lines of, well, I love God, but I don't like the church. The fact is, is that that very phrase, you, you don't understand it. By saying that, you, you realize that it's, it's, it's a completely non-biblical concept. In fact, let me put it another step further. Let me put it into another context. I'll be the recipient of this. So, for example, if you were to come to me and like, Pastor Brian, I really like you. I like your preaching. Good church. But your wife, I don't, I don't, she bugs me. Your kids, I don't like them. Frustrate me. You understand that that's, an, that's, I mean, obviously we'd all realize that's an insult. But the body of Christ, the church, is Jesus' wife. It's his bride. He loves the church. And so to say things like, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, may be something that is said that actually is just out of ignorance. I mean, it may be sometimes something that's said out of hurt because maybe you've been involved in the church before and maybe something happened in that church before and it's painful. People within that church said something to you, did something to you that was maybe abusive or hurtful or painful. I, I, I understand that and those happen. But the fact of the matter is, is that the church, this big thing called the body of Christ, God's people, he saves you and I to be into that church and it's not to inflict pain upon us, but when the church is operating and functioning rightly, there should be corrective mechanisms that are in play that leads to repentance, that leads church leaders to maybe apologize if they hurt someone, that leads the community to learn how to say, I'm sorry when offenses are done. But at the end of the day, the main point of the church family is to bring about the regular, reoccurring, flourishing of God's people. Give you a couple examples of this. Next slide, and we'll wrap it up on here. A couple verses. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 is one of the reasons why Paul, again, the author of Ephesians, says this, carry one another's burdens in a way that you will fulfill the law of Christ. 
uh, or I should say, in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What Paul is saying is that, look, there are those, what this means, in short, means that in any church gathering, there are going to be people that have a lot of baggage. That shouldn't shock us. The question is, how do we treat those that have baggage? See, oftentimes a church has sort of this expectation, like we want everybody to be strong, powerful, mighty warriors that stand mighty for God. And what happens is when those that are weak, broken, hemorrhaging, carrying lots of baggage, they come into that setting, they feel alienated, marginalized. And I would suggest to you that those are the very people that Jesus wants to reach. That's one of the reasons why Paul would say this, you, as God's or Christ's body, his hands, his feet, carry one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 says, We exhort you, warn those who are irresponsible, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Think about it this way. What if you were to show up into a group of people, a small group, church gathering, and you are broken? What we typically do is we put on our game face, Right? You put on our game face. And what that means is that when people ask us, how are you doing? We're like, I'm great. All right? If, if you're not super, like, you know, outgoing, you'll be like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. But in reality, behind all of that is this brokenness, this deep brokenness that you don't know how to express it. Maybe you don't even want to express it because you're afraid that by being real, by being transparent, by communicating it, you will not be accepted You'll be rejected. People will look at you as not being strong. People will look at you as not being part of like this great, standing, strong, standing, mighty group of people that's called the church. But what I would suggest to you is that the church is actually made up of people that are weak, that with God's strength are growing towards a posture of strength. What that means is that on any given time that we gather, there will be the majority of people, that's you, are broken, who feel ashamed, who feel defiled, who feel heavy. Life is beating the trash out of you. And you don't know where to turn. You're hemorrhaging. You're bleeding. Good news is you've come to the right place because it's in this spot that God's people meet. God's representatives, God's hand, God's body is there to pick you up. God's hand is there to level or lift off or leverage the burden that's on your back. God's power is there put on display that when there are needs to help you. And this is one of the things that makes uh, the early church so beautiful when we read passages like in the book of Acts is that when somebody had a financial need, others gather around and be like, we're going to do what we can to help you out. What that would look like in a practical setting within our church, it would look like if somebody came and they're having a hard time paying their rent, someone else within that community would be like, you know what? I got a couch that's been sitting in my garage. I've been trying to figure out what to use for the past seven years. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to give the $200 to you. So I want to help you. Figuring out ways to repurpose what we have to bless, help, carry the burdens of one of those are the ways in which God brings healing and wholeness. Those are the ways in which we can stand strong. And again, it's all by God's power, by God's grace, for God's people to be blessed and encouraged. And when that happens, something amazing takes place. 
the world looks at this thing and they're like, wow, people are like loving each other and they're being all sacrificial and they're selling couches to help others that have need and they're giving cars away to those that are having to go through a hard time. They're helping single moms, you know, kind of figure out ways to pay for child support because dad's a deadbeat. They're they're coming around all these people and rather than shaming them and shunning them and writing nasty blog posts about people, they are gathering around them and loving. This is amazing. What that does is that becomes a, what Jesus says, it's like a light set upon a hilltop that brings light into the otherwise darkness. So if I finish right now and just say, you guys all ready to go have a posture of strength? Some of you would be like, yeah, let's do it. Others of you would be like, yeah, I want to, but I know right now I can't. I feel so burdened. And I don't know how to get there. why we need to remind ourselves over and over again the gospel, the good news. And the good news is this. The very center, the very core of the Christian claim is that we have a God that though he was mighty and strength and power and authority, made himself of nothing, became weak, became alienated, was broken so that you and I who suffer in this world and languish in our vulnerabilities can be made whole and rather than alienated, welcomed and rather than oppressed, set free. How? Because he himself bore our sin, our shame, our brokenness so that you and I can be given hope, given help, given strength. This is the God that we have. This is the God that we worship. This is why we love our God, because of what he's done for us. So we're going to finish. Let's all stand. I'm going to have the worship leaders come on up. We'll close in a song. We have communion in the back. I encourage you, as you partake of it, to remind yourself, as you eat the broken bread, remind yourself that it was broken. It's a symbol of the fact that our God was broken for us, so that we who are broken can actually be made whole. And that wholeness is not just simply, again, subjective, personal wholeness, that wholeness also begins to make its way out into the horizontal relationships. So it's not just personal brokenness that God wants to heal. It's also relational brokenness. And that might look like you apologizing to someone that you offended. Or that might look like you forgiving someone that has apologized to you, bringing wholeness. That's what the gospel does. So if you're here this morning and you feel like you are hemorrhaging or broken or wounded or weak, or in a vulnerable posture. We want to pray for you. We have people every week that are off to the side that want to pray for you. And if you even look at your life and you just feel like, I am so overwhelmed in two weeks, I don't even feel like I can make it over there. Maybe there's people around you. Maybe people that came with you. This is the time for you to just be vulnerable. Like, look, I know I never told you about this. I'm sorry about that. Could you pray for me? I feel crushed. I feel broken. I feel weighted down. Maybe you're here and you feel strong. You feel like I got a posture. I feel strange. Maybe maybe God showed you someone that they came in here and they just they look weighted. Maybe God might lay upon your heart to go to that person and be like, Hey, you have no idea who I am. I never met you before. I kind of feel weird or creepy. But are you doing okay? Can I pray for you for anything? That environment is what breeds life. A 
life-giving reality, what we call the gospel. I invite you into that. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I invite you to come to this God that forgives you of your sin as you confess your sin to him. Let's sing.